Homeward is committed to partnering with parents and equipping you with the resources you need to raise your kids to become responsible adults. And Steadfast Companies, a leading real estate investment company, is proud to partner with Homeward to bring you the following podcast presentation. I believe in, like, the science behind God, I guess. I don't really have no clue. I turn to God, and he helps me through the problem. I'm Jim Byrne. Well, when he was 14 years old, best-selling author Lee Strobel made a spiritual decision. He gathered all the evidence he could find about the world's greatest and most influential religions. He concluded that he would live the rest of his life as an atheist. Well, several years later, Lee's wife became a Christian, and it made him rethink his opinions on faith, which led him to his writing of the landmark book, The Case for Christ. Lee's testimony reminds us of the kinds of spiritual decisions that our own kids are making right now and the importance of equipping them with the tools they need to not only understand their faith, but become a Christ follower. During the next half hour, I'll continue my conversation with Lee Strobel about making the case for Christ. So stay with us on Home. From the studios of the Homeward Center for Youth and Family on the campus of Azusa Pacific University, Merry Christmas from Homeward with parenting and family expert Dr. Jim Burns. I'm Roger Martian. Today on this day that we celebrate the birth of our Lord and understanding that there are a lot of people who don't, uh, they think of Christmas as a national gift-giving day or a, let's celebrate Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman Day. It's appropriate for us to have the conversation, uh, kind of re-airing a conversation that Jim recorded a few years ago with Lee Strobel, talking about making the case for Christ. Lee's sharing his own testimony. He's talking about what it was like to be an atheistic skeptic who was a legal expert but said there's no way you can find enough evidence that supports Jesus being the Christ. And now today on Christmas Day, you get to hear the conclusion of Lee's testimony about how he now believes it's really true. Here's Dr. Jim Burns. Welcome to Homeward. I'm Jim Burns. Today, Lee Strobel once again has appeared on CNN and Fox News programs, former legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, degree from Yale. Other books include Surviving a Spiritual Mismatch in Marriage, God's Outrageous Claims, The Case for Christmas, and a brand new book, that we uh, have talked about on a previous program called The Case for a Creator. Lee, welcome back to Homeward. Thank you, Jim, for having I me. I loved our conversation yesterday. I'm so energized. And for the people who didn't get to hear it, they missed an incredible program. But the fact is, is that you went from being an atheist to writing a book that supports the existence and the deity of Christ. Talk about that for a moment. That's right. I was an atheist for much of my early life. Uh, thought the idea of God was absurd, was ridiculous, wasn't even worth looking into. Thought it was based on mythology and wishful thinking. My wife, who was agnostic, met a woman who was a Christian. They built a relationship, went to church. She investigated the issues and became a follower of Jesus. And um, I thought it was going to blow our marriage apart. But instead, I saw positive changes in her character and values. And that encouraged me to begin my own investigation into whether or not Christianity or any other religion could stand up to intellectual scrutiny. And really, history and science are not enemies to the believers, what oh, you're trying to say. Absolutely not. They are our friends. They are our allies. I mean, science can tell us that the most rational and logical explanation for the data of astronomy, genetics, biochemistry, physics, cosmology, is that there is an intelligent designer. There is a creator. And then history can tell us something more specific about that creator. It can tell us that Jesus Christ entered into human history, made the claim that he's the Son of God, but didn't just say it. He proved it by returning from the dead, which is perhaps the most 
thoroughly attested claim of the ancient world. Well, what's interesting about it is it's not just the people who are not in church who struggle with this, but it's the church. We were talking before the program. When I got my master's degree at Princeton, Princeton Seminary and the university split in 1812 over the fact that the university started teaching science. Mm. They didn't want any science. Interesting. So they, so they split. So we in the church have been afraid of science. We've been yeah. afraid of history. And yet what you're saying is there's no reason to be. Absolutely. In fact, it was science and it was history that brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I remember interviewing uh, James Tour, who's one of the great nano scientists. Mm-hmm. In other words, he works in the molecular level, building molecules and so forth. Uh, and he said, you know what? The more you investigate science, the closer you come to God. And he said only a rookie would think that science would repel us from God. And in the sense, science draws us to God because the evidence points in the direction of a supernatural deity. Isn't that interesting? And yet at the same time, you hear a lot of people talking about the, the negative things that are being taught in public yeah. school and whatnot. And, and they're, they're pulling their kids out because they don't want to be taught any kind of science that goes against God. Mm. So you seem to have this... Uh, this crashing tension. Yeah. And there is the way in which science is often taught in high schools in America is problematic. It is a problem because the way evolution, for instance, is defined most commonly is that it is an undirected process, a purposeless process. And so that rules out a purposeful God and it rules out a God who is directing this undirected process. And so in a sense, uh, by teaching evolution in a way it's taught so many times in public schools, it does chase kids away from faith. And that is a problem. Yeah, and, and I can see that. Now, in our cases, today we're talking about your book, The Case for Christ. In recent years, there's something called the Jesus Seminar. Many yeah. of us have heard about it. We've read about it in Time Magazine and whatnot. And, and basically, you, and you talk about this in your book, but basically the, the Jesus uh, Seminar would be a group of people who do not necessarily believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, wasn't right. raised bodily in terms of the resurrection, and many ways that Jesus is not the Redeemer, that we can't really trust uh, the writings about Jesus or of Jesus. Yeah. How, how do you refute that? Yeah, you know, when you look at the evidence, what you find is that the number of people who are on the Jesus Seminar, which is, you know, a few dozen people, represent far less than 1% of New Testament scholars. And they represent the radical uh, left wing of the New Testament investigations. And so you have people who sort of rule out the possibility of a supernatural Jesus at the outset by having a strong skepticism toward the miraculous and toward the supernatural. Which really isn't a scientific hypothesis because you should be much more open exactly. uh, as you start to look. Yeah. Exactly. that. I think we ought to be open to uh, wherever the evidence points. And if it points toward Jesus making the claim he's the Son of God and proving it by returning from the dead, if that's where the evidence points, we ought to be free to consider that hypothesis. Now, kids today who really do want to follow Jesus, so many of them, they still have trouble with the fact that he healed the sick, he performed miracles. Mm. How do you help a kid understand, or even an adult understand, that really it, it's quite possible that Jesus healed the sick and that he performed these miracles that are in the Bible when yeah. people are saying, well, how, you know, I don't see that happening today. Yeah. It's a worldview question because if we allow the possibility that God exists and created the universe, he's already performed the most incredible miracle of all, which is creating everything from nothing which is creating all that we see and, 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 and a habitat for human beings and creating human life and so. So you know, the greatest miracles right there in Genesis, right there in the beginning. Uh, and if Jesus is who he claims to be, that is the son of God, it would make sense that he could perform the miraculous. And um, I don't have a problem with that because the miraculous is, is merely intervening in the, what is the natural order of things. Scientific laws merely describe the natural order of things, the way in which things generally act. 
if I were to uh, uh, drop this, this bottle of water, gravity would pull it toward the floor. But if I were to reach out and grab it, I've merely intervened. And so I think God, in a similar way, can intervene uh, against the natural order of things. And if Jesus is who we claim to be, we wouldn't think that that would be unusual at all. Now, Jesus claimed to be divine. Before you became a Christian, as you're going through this investigation, did you think that he was mentally unstable? I mean, somebody who says, I'm the son of God is either crazy or the son of God. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few options. He could be crazy, absolutely. And some people in his day thought he was. They yeah. accused him of being out of his mind. Um, he could be lying. He could be intentionally misrepresenting people. He could be just a legend. And this was what I believed. I believed that Jesus probably did live. He was probably a nice guy. He probably taught some interesting things. But after he died, people were all upset. And over a period of decades, many, many decades, his followers, through wishful thinking, sort of deified him. They sort of read back into his life things that didn't really take place. And they made up things about him in order to uh, make them feel good about the fact that they, too, would someday have eternal life and, and overcome death as Jesus did. So, that was sort of the position I took. What I found is the evidence supports none of that. That uh, I interviewed a professor of psychology, uh, someone who's written dozens of books on psychology, professor for 20 years in psychology, who said that the evidence is that Jesus was not mentally ill. He was, in fact, quite mentally stable and brilliant. Uh, his relationships, uh, what he taught and so forth, show no signs of mental illness. It, being a liar makes no sense, as someone would willing to be tortured to death for what they knew was a lie. And then we look at the legend issue. And, and what we find is that the historical documents that make up the New Testament of the Bible can be trusted and they are reliable and that we can pin our beliefs on them with confidence knowing that they do represent good historical information about what Jesus said, did, and how he rose from the dead. That is so, so critical. When we come back, we're going to talk about the resurrection. We'll spend the most of this next time talking about the fact, is there evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? And our point today, history and science are not enemies to the believer. That's for sure. I mean, how often do you hear someone saying, well, you know, we've got science to prove the fact that there is no God, completely ignoring the fact that if there was no God, there'd be no science. But today here on the Homeward Broadcast, having the conversation, Lee Strobel has been an apologist and uh, understand Lee has really taken his lumps. There are books that are written basically saying making the case against Lee Strobel. So I mean he really has been a lightning rod for controversy. He's such a nice man. Always very gracious with his time with us here in the Homeward Studios and uh, uh, today here on the program re-airing one of our classic conversations with him. Making the case for Christ as Lee is sharing his testimony. Today on this Christmas Day please know how grateful we are of course for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ but also how grateful we are for you and the fact that you share your gifts with us throughout the course of the year as well. We can't put this program on without your prayers and faithful financial support. Just want to take this opportunity to thank you for being so generous throughout the course of the year and reminding you, of course, Homeward.com is always available if you'd like to make a gift before the end of the year. And now, with the conclusion of today's program, here once again, Dr. Jim Burns. Welcome back to Homeward. I'm Jim Burns. Today, Lee Strobel. We're talking about the case for Christ and how important it is to actually investigate our faith, and our faith becomes even stronger, even on a personal testimony. Uh, when I was a new believer, and I became a Christian when I was 16 years old, I was struggling with the resurrection, and I started to study the resurrection and learn about the resurrection, and actually it helped me greatly in my faith and produce kind of a foundation. And even for kids, parents, uh, help your kids understand the evidence of the resurrection because it's really pretty incredible, but this is 
a critical issue, and a lot of people kind of argue about the resurrection. In your book, The Case for Christ, you talk about researching the resurrection. Right. You apparently had some problems with this resurrection Absolutely. Idea. I mean, everything hinges on this. And Apostle Paul recognized this. He said, if the resurrection isn't true, your faith is in vain. Why? Because anybody can claim that they're the Son of God. I could claim it. Nobody would believe me. Why? Because there's no evidence that I'm the Son of God. And yet Jesus said his resurrection would establish that he is who we claim to be. And indeed, if we look at the historical data, we find powerful lines of evidence that really do support the conclusion that he rose from the dead and thus authenticated his claim to being the Son of God. And you've actually had debates with atheists on this. Oh, I've, I've gotten into, we've mixed it up quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. And you have something called three E's. Right. Talk about those three E's. Yeah, it's just an easy way to remember the evidence for the resurrection. And when somebody challenges you on it, uh, it's easy to remember. Uh, the first E stands for empty tomb. Everybody in the ancient world admitted the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty on the first Easter morning. The question was, how did it get empty? That was the issue. Now, the opponents of Jesus made up this ridiculous story that the disciples stole the body, which makes no sense. They didn't have the motive. They didn't have the opportunity. In fact, there is no scholar in contemporary, even skeptic circles who would make that claim today. The question is, how did the tomb get empty? Uh, I think when we have a unanimity among people that the tomb was vacant on that first Easter, that is significant evidence that Christians are on to something. Now, in early years, they would have said that they went to the wrong tomb. Yeah, I mean, that's something some people say, but actually, Joseph of Arimathea knew where his tomb was. He was uh, the person who provided the tomb for Jesus, and uh, there was no doubt in his mind where the tomb was. And I think before people were willing to allow themselves to be tortured to death through persecution, they would make darn sure that they had gone to the right tomb. There and it indeed, is, it right. was empty. Well, okay, so you got an empty tomb. Right. But there's, there's other issues, that's too. That's right. The first E is empty tomb. Second E is eyewitnesses. That's very important because an empty tomb does not a resurrection make. And yet, when you have eyewitnesses, and we here in the case of Jesus, it wasn't just one or two. It was just, wasn't just one incident or a couple. It was many appearances over a period of several weeks. And you have over 515 eyewitnesses, including skeptics, whose lives were transformed 180 degrees because they encountered the resurrected Jesus. These people touched Jesus, they talked to him, they encountered him indoors and outdoors at, during the night, during the day, all sorts of different circumstances. People were tender-hearted, people were hard-hearted, people who were opponents of Jesus, people like the, the Saul of Tarsus who was torturing Christians to death and killing Christians, persecuting Christians. Because of his encounter with the resurrected Jesus, he became the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary in history. So we have first the tomb is empty, then we have eyewitnesses, but I think the most fascinating area for me, the third E stands for early accounts. And what I mean by that is, I used to think, as a lot of people claim, that this idea that Jesus rose from the dead was just a legend that developed in the many centuries after his life. Yet, we have preserved for us a creed of the early church. This creed summarizes the essence of Christianity, that Jesus died, why? For our sins, that he was buried, that he was resurrected on the third day, and then it mentions specific people, including skeptics, whose lives were transformed by encountering the resurrected Jesus. Now, this creed, which was recited by the earliest Christians, has been dated back by scholars from a wide range of theological belief to as early as two to three years after the life of Jesus, and the beliefs that make up that creed go right back to the cross itself. So you don't have this huge gap of time during which legend grew up and wiped out a solid core of historical truth. This is like a newsflash of ancient history. In fact, a study was done 
by A.N. Sherwin-White, the great classical historian from England. He studied the rate at which legend would grow up in the ancient world, and he found that the passage of two generations of time was not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. Well, here we don't have the passage of two generations of time. We have a newsflash from history that dates right back to the events themselves. It would be unprecedented in the history of the world for legend to develop that quickly and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. So we have very early accounts and therefore trustworthy accounts. And if you'd like to read this creed, the Apostle Paul preserves it for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and following. So he actually records this for us so we have it. So when we combine these together, when we have the early accounts, when we have the eyewitnesses, when we have the empty tomb, it provides a good backbone for building the case for the resurrection of Jesus. And in many ways, this is what brought you to faith. Absolutely, because when I came to the conclusion that the evidence strongly supports the actual physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then I had to sit back and say, what does that mean? For me, it meant that Jesus, who predicted he would return from the dead, that he is who he claimed to be, that he is telling the truth when he says that he is the Son of God, and that therefore he deserves my worship, he deserves my allegiance. John says, uh, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. And that, to me, forms a little equation. Believe plus receive equals become. And as I did my investigation, I came to believe, based on the evidence, that Jesus returned from the dead and thus authenticated his claim to be the Son of God. I believe that, but that wasn't enough. It's believe plus receive. I had, in a point of time, I needed to pray and receive Jesus Christ as the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. And when I did that, I became, according to John 1.12, a child of God forever. Now, in many ways, you were put in disequilibrium because you were you were going through all this. You came to this place of believing. Um, what caused you to then take that next step? Well, I was uh, it was November, November the eighth of nineteen eighty one. I had uh, it was a Sunday. I'd gone to church with my wife that day as part of my investigation. I came home. I was alone in my room, and I took a yellow legal pad and I put a line down the middle and I started to write out the pros and the cons. I started to write out the evidence I had seen over this period, uh, nearly two-year investigation I did, the evidence for and against the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote, and finally I put down my pen. And I said, wait a minute. I said, in light of this avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Jesus being the unique Son of God, it would require more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because if I'm to maintain my atheism in light of all of this evidence I've seen now, I would have to, in effect, swim upstream against the current and the flow of evidence in the other direction. That's not logical. That's not rational. The most logical and rational step I could take was a step of faith in the same direction the evidence is pointing. That's the key thing. Faith to me is taking a step to put our trust in Jesus, a step in the same direction the evidence of science and the evidence of history is pointing. When we do that, that is a logical, rational step. And I did it on that day. And, uh, you know, some people have a very emotional response when they put their trust in Jesus. I didn't particularly have an emotional response. To me, it was the rush of reason. This is the most logical, rational response a human being can make to the abundance of evidence that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. Somebody just heard that. They said, that makes sense. I need to do the same thing. Mm. What do you suggest they do? Man, I say, look at that equation. Believe plus receive equals become. Right out of John 1.12, right out of the Bible. If you believe, that's great. You've taken a huge step, but it's not enough. Believing by itself is only part of it. You need to receive. And that is a very easy step to take. It's just in a heartfelt prayer to God to say, you know what? 
I do believe that Jesus died in my place, paid the death penalty I deserve for all the wrongs that I've done. On my behalf, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my forgiver, as my leader. I want to no longer live the kind of life I've been living. I've made mistakes. I've done things I knew were wrong before I even did them. And I did them anyway. And I know that's wrong. And I want to turn from that life. And I want to follow Jesus with the power now that God will give me to do so. When we believe and we receive Jesus in repentance and faith as our forgiver and leader, we then become a child of God and we begin to be transformed. I mean, I think in my own life, uh, having been an atheist, having come to that place of believing and on that day, November 8th of 81, receiving and then over the years to see how my values and my character and my worldview and my philosophy and my priorities and my relationships and my parenting, all various aspects of my life over time changed for the good. The ugliest truth about me is back in those days as an atheist when my daughter would be playing on the living room floor you know, with some toys or whatever and she would hear me come home from work, her natural reaction was to gather her toys and go in her room and close the door. Was he going to be drunk again? Was he going to be yelling and kicking holes in walls and unpredictable? You know, I think I'd just rather be here where it's safe. But that's the ugliest truth about me. But I came to Christ and I received his forgiveness and his leadership in my life. And my life began to change as my wife's had. So much so, so radically so, that five or six months after I became a follower of Jesus, and my little girl just watching from her little five-year-old perspective of her dad changing, came up to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. And at age five, my little girl Allison put her trust in Christ. And I go back to that day on November 8th of 81 where having done the hard work and having done the investigation and coming to the conclusion this is true, to take that step and to say, I believe, but I need to receive. There needs to be a point in time where I give my life to Jesus. Wow. Thank you, Lee Strobel, for being with us. What an incredible story. What a fact that history and science are not enemies to the believer, but also it's the miracle of a changed life. And in many ways, we've talked about history and science, but we've also talked about the miracle of a changed life. It happens to be yours, and it's there for others as well. Mm. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Jim. And that concludes our conversation with Lee Strobel today here on the Homeward Broadcast, Making the Case for Christ. By the way, I encourage you to go back in the archives. We recently just re-aired Making the Case for a Creator as well. And we've got programs on Easter with Lee Strobel. There's some great material in our audio archives. Go to homeward.com, H-O-M-E-W-O-R-D.com. Hit the radio broadcast tab, and then when it says previous programs, you go to the archives, we've got years worth of material there, all free at homeward.com. Hey, Jim, it's Christmas Day. You've got a gift for our listeners. I understand that you've been writing. I have been writing, and part of what I'm writing is in the Homeward Marriage Initiative. We have a phrase at Homeward right now where we say we, it's called the 1% Initiative. What that means is that if we can move the divorce rate just 1%, it's around 50%, it's maybe a little better in some places, worse in the county that I live in and that you live in. But if we could move at 1%, we could affect 1.5 million kids. And we're doing it in several ways, but what I'm writing right now is actually on getting ready for marriage. You know, most couples put all of their energy into the wedding and they don't put much energy into the actual marriage or the pre-marriage. And so we are coming out with an incredible project that's going to be a book on getting ready for marriage. It's going to be an online tool. It's going to be a small group curriculum that people will use all over the world. And we're excited about it. Here at the end of the year, we're actually still trying to raise some funds to make that happen. Now, we're going in faith that we're going to be able to publish this stuff. 
But we need to raise at the end of the year about $300,000 to make sure that uh, marriages can succeed and we can come alongside marriages. Every marriage does not succeed, but the fact is, is that we can help change that percentage. And even if it was 1%, that's a good thing. So as I'm doing this, I'm kind of hiding away writing, but we do have some of the folks in our offices trying to raise money. The radio is a place where we do raise money. We don't raise a lot of money. People who would listen to us for a long time have really seldom heard us talk much about the fact that we are a donor-supported ministry. But at the end of the year, a lot of times people are thinking about giving to a favorite charity or an organization that will make a difference. And as the president of Homeward, I can guarantee you that any gift that you would give to Homeward would be a changed life. And uh, we don't make a lot of money and we don't spend frivolously money, but we actually use it as stewardship in the name of the Lord. And uh, I'm excited about the fact that we're using this year-end money to really help marriages succeed. We're hoping many of our supporters and our listeners and our partners will get behind us and send in something here at the end of the year. Absolutely. And uh, you can give that gift at homeward.com. And as we think about uh, the gifts that we have received throughout the course of the year, of course, we think about the gift of salvation that is available to anyone who will uh, who will confess Jesus as, as Lord and believe and profess that uh, he has been raised from the dead. I mean, that's the biblical command. And that's the, those are the beliefs that drive us here at Homeward to want to help marriage to succeed, help parent-child relationships succeed. We want to see the culture transformed with the biblical worldview, and we appreciate partnering with you in that ministry. I mean, it's so very, very vital, uh, not just for us, but for all of society, and uh, thank you for being committed to that work. And now for Dr. Jim Burns, our engineer, Ben Camp, and the rest of the staff, I'm Roger Marsh. God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas holiday. Merry Christmas from all of us at Homeward. We'll talk to you again next time. Homeward with Jim Burns is a production of the Homeward Center for Youth and Family at Azusa Pacific University.